apologies, although I've been harassed already for my low-tech technology today. I'll be using my tablet and a white screen. Um, I had several twists and turns to which direction I thought I'd go in trying to do this, and and uh, I said if I tried to put together a PowerPoint, I'll be up half the night, and um, who knows what I'll say after a night with no sleep like that. So um, hopefully we can get by with some old school technology here. Can everyone see that okay for when it's time? Oh, good. Well, if you'll turn with me to begin with this morning to Isaiah 9, Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to start with reading two verses there as we begin our time together this morning. For those of you who have not been with us, we have been going through a brief uh, overview of prophecy. And uh, we have found ourselves in Ezekiel and uh, Revelation, Zechariah. And uh, today we're going to wind our way back to Revelation chapter chapters 10, 11, and 12. But our tour to get there is going to take a little bit of a, uh, a backwards loop. So uh, uh, we, we want to work together on a few passages leading up to that to kind of set the the framework for what we're going to talk about, because it's been helpful to me, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. But in Isaiah chapter 9, we find uh, two verses very commonly read this time of year at Christmas time. And so if you'll join me as we take a look, we'll begin our study this morning. We're in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And it reads, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And may God bless the reading of his word. Father, as we pause once again in your presence, we thank you for the privilege of being able to approach you. And we don't come because there's anything good found in us that can give us favor in your sight. Only that your son, the Lord Jesus, whom you sent into the world, which we've been celebrating this season, but not just to come to this world, but to go to the cross, to die, to pay the penalty of our sin, that we might be forgiven and that your justice and holiness might be satisfied, and yet your love toward us would remain, that you might shower the blessings of forgiveness and grace and eternal life, and even an eternal inheritance as sons of God. And we give you thanks today. We pray that as we take a look into your word, that you would lead us, guide us, help us to understand what you would have us to understand, and have a greater appreciation for not only what you've done, but what you are planning to do in the days to come. And to have an encouraged and emboldened faith while we wait for the fulfillment of these things. And that we would be faithful witnesses to these things while indeed we wait. And so we commit this time to you not only here, but in the Sunday school rooms and everywhere else where your word is open and proclaimed. 
And we ask that all things be done to the honor and glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wanted to start here for two reasons. Number one, because it is very appropriate that uh, we consider this thought. That the promise was given that this child would be born, the Savior. And everything that we read in verse 6 is true about him. But, you know, verse 7, we don't always read at Christmas time, but it's also speaking of Christ. And it's also true, but these things are yet future. And it gets, what gets confusing about prophecy is that being future, it's mysterious how it's all going to take place. And especially when it comes to Christ, what gets confusing about this, and this is what people struggled with in Jesus' day, is because there was all these predictions of the Savior, the Messiah, who would be victorious, and he is and will be. And yet there was these prophecies about how he would suffer, and he did, and they were both true, and no one could understand how it is that they were going to be true at the same time. And what was a big help to me, as uh, uh, it was explained to me in days gone by, right, as the prophets looked out into the future from the day in which they lived, and the Holy Spirit would give them revelation, right? They would look out, and perhaps you've experienced this kind of thing yourself, right? I know as I've traveled my favorite part of the journey between here and the Midwest, because I made so many trips to Iowa when I was at Emmaus and uh, the Lamppost Theater Company and all those things. My favorite part of the trip was when we went through Chattanooga, Tennessee. Just coming out of the flatlands and going over those mountains and looking out so far, I just loved going over there. And, you know, as you look out, it seems that you would see these various mountain peaks and, uh, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains, they call it, right? And, and what you see as you look out is this, yes, this line of mountain peaks, and, and you can kind of see one from the other because their shades would be slightly different. And yet, at the same time, you can't see all the towns and villages that are between them. You could just appreciate this majestic view of the peaks, right? Well, really what was happening in the, in the days of the prophets as God gave them revelation is that they were looking out in time. And so here we see the eyes of the prophet looking forward. You're going to have to forgive my artwork on the poor prophet here. Um, But as he looked forward into time, right, this is the line that he's trying to see. Now, he can see all of this, right? But what he was getting revelations from in passages like this was concerning Christ's first coming and his second coming. But he didn't realize that there was this huge gap in time between them. Right. It's only because we're looking back in history that we can see that there is this mystery that they could not see in the Old Testament where God actually had in mind the church age where Christ, he would come, but he would die and he would even be rejected. And so he went back to heaven. And in this gap of time between his first coming and second coming, we understand that to be the age that we're in now called the church age. But the prophet couldn't see that. All he could see was these little peaks that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him. And we see an example of this in Isaiah 9, don't we, right? Unto us, a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Was the child born? Yes. He wasn't just a baby. He was the Son of God come in the flesh. And so we see this fulfilled in his first coming. But the increase of his government and peace... There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. But wait a minute. Sat on David's throne there in Jerusalem. Did God get it wrong? 
Is the, is, is, is the, is the prophecy incorrect? What happened? And without the understanding that there are these valleys out of view of the prophet and yet still future, this is one of the secrets of understanding the prophecies in the Bible. And uh, this is why so many people struggle with believing the Bible because they don't understand. But if we can understand this, it can help us in our journey as we're looking at these prophecies because some of them are past and some of them are future. And we have to be able to discern which is which. To help us in our journey today, I'd like to kind of uh, share an illustration. I don't know about you, but in my family, we like to do puzzles. We don't often have a whole lot of time to do puzzles, but usually at Christmas time, we have a little bit of time when finally the Christmas program is done and all your shopping is done. And we can actually sit in the house and uh, and read together. Someone will be doing a puzzle, someone coloring, someone doing whatever, a craft of some kind, but we'll do some reading. But some of us like to do puzzles. Well, doing a puzzle can be difficult. Um, you, you, you look at the box and uh, you see this nice picture and then you dump the pieces out and you stare at them on the table for a long time. And you're just kind of mesmerized. How in the world is all this coming together? Well, I'd like to suggest that Looking at the prophecy in the Bible is a little bit like putting one of these puzzles together, right? Uh, you can't be overwhelmed by all the pieces. Some of us see all the pieces and walk away from the table, right? When it comes to prophecy, let's not walk away from the table because there's a lot of pieces that seem scattered all over the place. So what do we do? Well, you know, when I put together a puzzle at my house, the first thing I do, some people call this cheating, is I look for all the border pieces, right? They got a straight edge on them and you, so you, you go through the box and you make two piles, Border piece, not. Border piece, not. Not, 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 not. Border piece, not. You know, and, and you separate them, right? So now I've established these are the borders. And then I sit there and I put them together. And, and, I, and I know they got to fit because it's a border piece. And it, the, the, the puzzle has to be able to finish all the, all the edges so that you can put the rest of the pieces in. So once I finally get those, I say, okay. Down here, they got some red with some flowers. Over here, we got the, tree, the leaves. Over here, you know, if it's a Christmas puzzle, okay, you got the Christmas tree and whatever. Then you can start putting together the pieces that uh, you start grouping them, right? Well, how do you know how to group them? Well, you also have the picture on the box, right? So after I get my border, I say, okay, I get out the box. All right, so this is a... Now, I've noticed this about good puzzles. Sorry, I know this is a long illustration, but it's going to help us in our journey. Every good puzzle has more than one object or part of the scene that has the same texture or color or, or shapes in it, right? Um, and so if, if it's a, a land scene, sometimes they, they'll put a river, a, a, a body of water where it's reflecting the house or the lights or whatever it is. Or uh, there's more than one snowman. Or if there's a tree up there, a Christmas tree, they put a wreath somewhere in there. Or there's a window with, with more trees outside. There's more than one. And so you find things that are similar. And so you're not exactly sure where they go, but you start grouping things together. But with the help of the box with the big picture, you're able to start sorting through these pieces. And after you group them, once you get those groups together, then you start evaluating one next to the other to see how they fit together to finish off that little uh, 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 wise man or the baby in the manger. Anybody ever notice that Mary's always wearing a blue robe? I don't know where that came from, but it seems like that's where all the pictures say. And then uh, uh, after you do that, you know, from time to time, you got to step back and you look and... 
You take encouragement from the little bit of work that you've been able to do, putting those pieces together. Okay, I can kind of see his face here. Or wait a minute, I, I've got a hand over here and I don't know where it goes, but okay, let me put it over here. I've got some other hands. And, and, and you're putting things together by groups as little by little you're putting the pieces together. And, and finally, if you continue on, the puzzle begins to come together. But the last, the last tip that I give myself as well as to you is don't be discouraged by the pieces you just can't figure out where they go. You're holding on to that one piece and you're trying to make it fit and you don't know what to do with it and you can get overwhelmed with what's not fitting together. But if we just start with the borders and we keep looking at the big picture and take the pieces we do know and fit them together and take the ones that are kind of seem to be in the arena and start comparing them, little by little we'll find more and more of the puzzle coming together. But it's hard not to be discouraged. I remember, wow, this is before I got married, so we're going back... 1996, I think it was. I was still in college, and a lot of the youth group was going to camp for the summer, and someone had given me a Coca-Cola puzzle, and I loved Coca-Cola stuff, and I decorated my kitchen with it, and so I said, I'm going to do this puzzle. It was a 2,000-piece puzzle. I've never done one that big before, and I'll never do one again. 1,000 is about as much as I go. But I remember it was summertime, so I had time, so I started sorting through the box, and next thing I know, I had no more room on this. All the leave was out in in my dining table, and so I still had too many pieces. And so I called my parents and I borrowed an extra table of theirs that had these leaves and I put it up in my apartment and, and one was full of pieces and one was full of the stuff I was trying to put together. And after a couple of weeks, I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. And then one of the kids in the youth group called and they said, Hey, listen, what are you doing tonight? We want to go. I forget where they wanted to go. I said, no, I'm going to stay home. But Hey, listen, if you want to come over to my apartment, we'll order pizza and you can help me work on my puzzle. Believe it or not, they took me up on the offer. I, it must have been the pizza. So I got there. They came and, and we were hanging out. And by the end of that night, I started seeing pieces of the puzzle coming together. I could see part of the Coke machine. And then there was the bicycle and the truck. And, and it started. There was enough of it there. And I got encouraged again. I, literally, I was the next day saying, I'm just going to put this back in the box and give it away. But, you know, seeing the pieces come together encouraged me. And I continued. Well, to end that story... When I finally got everything together, there was still one piece missing. And I couldn't find it. It was nowhere to be found in the house. And uh, again, I was discouraged. Um, I called the company. And I said, listen, there's a piece missing. Everything was here when I started this puzzle. And I've searched everywhere. And I thought it was somehow missing from the box. They said, well, we can send you another. You know, they stamp them out. It's the same. And uh, we can send you another. It may not fit exactly, but the pieces will all be there. And uh, then I started to doubt, well, did I lose it or was it really there? Well, my mom was walking from her house to my apartment and found it in the grass. And it was faded in the sun. I I, I glued it in there anyway. I didn't want to lose it again. But, you know, in prophecy, we can even be discouraged just from one piece that's not there. But, you know, God has not revealed to us everything. And we've got to trust that what his plan is is going to take place and where the gaps are. Let's not get so fixated on them because we can be discouraged and give up our pursuit. But this is to encourage our hearts while we wait for it to happen because we can see the assurance of what he has revealed to us and what's already taken place. And the borders show us, I mean, it's not just imaginary. My aunt used to do puzzles and my uncle bought her one that had no straight edge pieces. They were all jagged like there was more pieces supposed to be there and about five or six pieces that didn't go anywhere. They just looked like they belong in the puzzle. And, uh, you know, God didn't do that to us. There's no pieces that don't fit, that don't belong. We may not understand it. We just got to leave them aside and say, the time will come. And he'll fill in the gaps. And so that's what we're looking at in Revelation, right? Some things he's revealed to us. Some things are mysteries. But uh, 
let's not be discouraged in the process. So how does this relate to our uh, prophecy? Well, let me just say this about the borders, right? There are some boundaries that we know God uses. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. So we're looking at prophecies. We may not understand them, but are they true? We know they are. So let's remember, that's one of the border pieces to frame in prophecy is that we know that it's true. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said, listen, heaven and earth are not going to go away. I didn't come to destroy the law, to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. And not heaven and earth will not pass away until every jot or tittle of his word comes to pass. Right? None of it's going to get lost. And so we can, we can hang on knowing that it's true and that it's going to be fulfilled. Even if we don't understand it, it's going to be fulfilled. They didn't understand exactly how all that was going to happen. But we see how many of them were fulfilled at his first coming to the T. Lots and lots of them. And so it can give us confidence as we look out into the future and wait for him to set up that kingdom that Isaiah talked about on the throne of David. And he will order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, this is where we come into contention with those who want to say that God is done with Israel and all those promises now default to the church because God made some extreme promises to Israel, didn't he? Now we found ourselves in Jeremiah 31 this morning, but I was planning to go there today in this service. Also, if you'll look there just briefly with me, I I love this. He says, as he introduces the new covenant, which we've entered entered into the grace of God to us through the, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said to them, Starting in verse 35, this is Jeremiah 31, 35. He says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the, of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Do you catch that? He says, if the sun stops shining and if the moon stops its course, then I'll cast off Israel because of all the things that they've done. Well, last I looked this morning, the sun came up, didn't it? And so God says, my promises still stand to Israel. And when he talks about the throne of David, he means the throne of David here on earth. Because he's going to keep his promise. And, you know, that gives us confidence, doesn't it? Right. Because he's made us promises. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 8, 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Truly, truly, I say unto you. He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me, John 5, 24, has present tense, everlasting life and shall not in the future come into condemnation, but has already past tense, passed out of death into life. He's going to keep these promises because he's a promise keeping God. He's faithful and true. And these are the boundaries that we hang all this on. So when we look at prophecy, he's got those same boundaries and he's not going to violate them. And so it's our starting place for all these things. And one of the pieces that I wanted to look at that helps us to, to start filling in those gaps that we haven't looked at. I know we've looked in Zechariah. If you'll just turn with me briefly to, to Daniel chapter 9. I debated whether to go here this morning because 
it can be confusing and you lose people or they just give up because it's too overwhelming what they can't see. But really, this passage is going to help us as we continue in Revelation because we see some timetables begin to be laid out. It's a framework. It's really just the the the, the coat hangers that the rest of it's going to be, be hung on. And uh, Daniel believed in the accuracy of the prophecy of God. Right. We read just a few chapters before. In uh, thought it was chapter seven. Oh, no, it's beginning of chapter nine. Same part of the page, different page. He says that as Daniel was reading the word of God, look at uh, Daniel nine, two. He says, OK, well, nine, one in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes who was made king in the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Here's Daniel. He was taken off into captivity and they had the letter of Jeremiah. And in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, God said, listen, your time of being away from your homeland, out of your land and with the temple not functioning is 70 years. And Daniel's looking out. He's been there all of his life in, in, in uh, Babylon. And he says, Lord, it's been 70 years. And so we're looking to you to undo all this judgment and bring us back to our land. And so he's crying out to God for discernment, for understanding about what God is doing, because the 70 years are coming to an end. And it's in response to his crying out to the Lord, his confessing of his sin and his prayers lingering over the word of God and crying out to God for understanding that this prophecy comes. And so Gabriel, the angel, comes to Daniel and he says here, starting in verse 24, he says, listen, Daniel, consider the matter and understand this vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Stop right there. If you've heard about Daniel, the 70 weeks, this is where it comes from. And we're just going to briefly take a look at it. Now, a week is how many days? Seven, right? Now, the word week is the word seven. We tend to think of days. So when people say, well, it's going to it's going to take a week. We don't ask them, are you talking seven hours, seven minutes, seven days, seven months, seven years, seven decades? We assume days. But the word here really means just seven. So what 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 we understand as we continue to study is that it was a week of years. So when when. Gabriel tells Daniel, listen, there is a group of 77s for your people and for your city. He means 70 groups of seven years. What's going to happen in those years? He says, well, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. He says, this is what's going to happen until 70 weeks are determined for your people until... We seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. So this is the basic timetable. We're talking about 77s, which is 490. And we now understand that to be years. So he says, know, therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the command to go restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so we do our number crunching, right? Seven times seven is 49. And then 62 times seven is 400 and I think I wrote it down. Is it 34? 434. So there's a total of 483 years out there in that first 69 weeks. And it says until Messiah. Wait, wait, okay. Until Messiah, the prince. 
So he says, from the time of the going forth to go rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, that's going to take those 69 weeks. Sure enough, Cyrus comes along and he commands them to go back just before 500. They're going back to the land and rebuilding the temple. It takes them a long time. They rebuild the city. And it's a little bit longer than that. I don't, there, there's some gaps at the end of these weeks. But the, the weeks determined for them, part of God's judgment and difficulties because of the sin that they had committed. Uh, uh, well, those, uh, those passed. And then Messiah came. And we see that in the coming of Jesus roughly 500 years after this prophecy began. But then it says, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself. He died for the, our sins, we know. And the, prince, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So he says, after Messiah is cut off, the people who belong to the prince who is to come he says he's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Did that happen? It did. So Jesus went back to heaven and they destroyed the city. And so that, that, that's already past tense. Verse 27 is the key to the future now. Then he, sa- then he, that is this prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Wait a minute. How many weeks are left of the 70? One. And it's a week of years. So, as we look... Well, let me come back down here. Let me finish reading it. He'll make a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So he says, this prince who is to come will make a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week, he's going to break his covenant. He's going to stop sacrifices and offerings. And there's going to be an abomination which makes the temple desolate. Now, that is where we start seeing the New Testament filling in the gaps. What we see in the New Testament timeline, as we look at these border pieces, is that we're right here at the edge of 2016. And time's moving forward. And according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're waiting for Jesus to return in the rapture, aren't we? Right? Paul was waiting for it. He said it was the next order of events. So he thought it could come in his day and it can still come in our day. And it looks like increasingly we're right on the edge of it, like Aaron was saying earlier. But after that comes at some point. Now, I don't know exactly how long this time is going to be, but it says he's going to make this covenant with the people for one week. So from this time, from the covenant until this time is going to be one week or seven years But somewhere in the middle, this prince is going to break his covenant and there's going to be an abomination. There's going to be something so terrible happening that the people making sacrifices in the temple are going to desert it. It'll be left desolate because it's such an abomination and there will be um, troubles and persecution. So the Bible calls this time period the tribulation and this last part the great tribulation. And each of those are three and a half years. Why do I labor on that? Because we're coming into several three and a half years here in Revelation chapter 10 through 12, where we find ourselves today. And without that framework, the three and a half years just don't, they don't make a whole lot of sense. And you're trying to stretch them out and condense them and overlap and see how these fit together. But that's what's waiting. And the the thing that we need to remember is that he said, oh, 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 after that, he says until the consummation, right? So 
After that, when Jesus returns for the second coming, he is going to come back. And uh, his second coming will be here at the end of the seven years. And then he will have a thousand year reign called the millennium. And after that, go into all eternity. Now, there's more gaps to fill in there, but that's the general time frame. Now, where we found ourselves in the book of Revelation so far, right? John was told in chapter one, write the things which are. He saw Jesus. He wrote chapter one. He says, uh, um, oh, excuse me, the things that you have seen. He saw the vision of Jesus, chapter one. The things that are, chapters two and three in the church. And then after chapter four, the things to come. So all this things to come is what he's started walking us through in this book. And in chapter six through nine, we saw as Jesus now has come to take possession of the earth, he started taking that scroll and popping the seals. And each time he popped open one of those seals, we saw these judgments. Now, see, this is where we got to fix our eyes on the borders and keep the big picture and not get hung up on the pieces. Right. There's lots of debate over what is the white horse or people get into debates on that thing. But when it starts talking about the number of people perishing, the pain and destruction, their responses to the Lord Jesus, those things are very clear. And so let's not get distracted by the, the, what's on those pieces that don't seem to fully clue us in on the big picture. We got to just start putting them where they belong in the puzzle. And so we've gone through those, right? The seven seals. And when he opened the seventh seal, Suddenly, we realize it's not just one event, but a whole other series of trumpet judgments. And we've started in on those. And now we come to chapter 10. And this is in Revelation chapter 10. I saw still another mighty angel coming down. Lots of mighty angels that were speaking to him and showing him these visions. And here comes another one from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head. And his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire doesn't sound like he's coming to make peace, does it? The pillars of fire speak of judgment and he's, he's clothed with a cloud and we see this rainbow around his head. Like it's obvious he's coming from the glory of God. His face was like the sun and he had a little book or scroll open in his hand. See, the Lord's already opened all seven seals. That scroll is open and he's holding the scroll to be able to start carrying out what's in it, I believe. And it says he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which are, which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Oh boy, I bet we wish we could have known what they said. The Lord didn't tell us. It's enough to know that the Lord was speaking. He's working. Whatever predictions he may have made, whatever instructions he said, don't tell them now. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. This is one reason I don't believe it is Jesus. There's some who want to say that this is Jesus. But the fact that he swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, that it's not. The earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. This is an amazing verse right there. He swears by God that there should be delay no longer. You remember what happened when the fifth seal was opened and the, those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they held cried out with a loud voice saying, this is chapter 6, verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Things have been upside down. Evil has been reigning. 
And those who've stood true to, to the Lord are wondering, Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? And he told them then, you wait. Because until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren who will be killed as they, as they were are completed. So they were waiting. But now suddenly this angel comes in and announces and swears by the God of heaven, there shall be delay no longer. Things have been waiting and God has been giving grace. He's been, the door of salvation has been open and he's been allowing people in his own patience the chance to repent. And maybe you're one of those people here today and you have heard about Jesus Christ. You've heard that he came and you've heard that he's going to come again, whether you believe that or not. We know it to be true based on the, his promises that he's already made and he's already kept. He will keep his word. But to those who reject him, the Bible says every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God, the father. But see, those who refuse him now, when they finally go to bow their knee after this life is over, it'll be too late. Don't wait until then. Today is the day of God's grace. And we invite you to put your trust in Jesus Christ so that you can know that your sin is forgiven and be saved. But he says at this time, there's going to be delay no longer. But, Revelation 10, 7, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Remember Daniel said, until the consummation, and he anoints the Holy One, right? It's all going to come to an end. The mystery of how those things are going to happen. The mystery of God is going to be finished. There'll be no more question about the fuzzy stuff. It's going to all unfold and it'll be very clear. It's exactly as he said it would be. And they recognize that at the end of chapter nine. Isn't that what they said? Uh, verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone and wood, which they can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or sorceries or sexual immorality or their thefts. They began to recognize it was the hand of God, but rather than repenting, they just got more angry at him and continued to run the other way. Their hearts have been hardened and they no longer turn back to him. But for now, in our day and age, we have his grace. But then the voice comes to him from heaven and speaks to him and says, verse 8, Go take that little scroll, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the earth. And, and I went to the angel and said, give me the little, the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues and kings. And isn't that what it's like? I know I go back and forth. I hear about that. I, I read Philippians 2 and I think, even so come Lord Jesus. I want to be there to worship at his feet and be free from sin and just be there in his presence and enjoy the inheritance that he's promised. But he says, every knee will bow. And I have family members who don't know Christ. We have neighbors that don't know Christ. We have millions and millions of people around us that that day will be bitter. And as he read the words of this prophecy, there was a sense of how sweet it was in his mouth to think God's going to set up that throne and he's going to rule and he's going to put things right. But as he has to write these new prophecies, it's bitter in his stomach. It's going to turn his stomach. It's so horrific what is waiting 
as it unfolds. And so he continues the revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is on the outside the temple. Do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. 42 months is, you know what? Three and a half years, half of our seven. So he says, listen, I want you to take this reed and you go measure. And, and Ezekiel did this, right? Ezekiel was given a, a, a measuring rod and he went out and he measured the temple because God wanted to record um, what it was that was going to be established. He said, this is, and, and he gave very intricate details, lots of measurements. We don't get all the measurements here, but he says, listen, I want you to go out again and measure the temple. This is mine. I'm going to make sure we take care of that. But he says, the courtyard that's outside, don't even bother measuring that. It has been given to the Gentiles. They're going to tread down that holy city for 42 months. So for, for half of this upcoming season of this period of tribulation, Jerusalem is going to be trodden by the Gentiles. They're going to be wreaking havoc against the Lord's people and against that holy city. But God hasn't left his people totally alone, right? Verse three says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Oh, 1,260 days. That's also three and a half years. So for the same duration of time that the Gentiles were given freedom to trot underfoot that city, there's also three and a half year period where these witnesses are going to have power from the Lord. What are they going to do? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Zechariah 4, you can read about that vision, talks about these two, uh, the olive tree and the lampstands. We won't go there right now, though. If anyone wants to learn to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. But verse 6, they shall have power to shut the heavens so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, this is where... Movie makers love the camp, right? How are they going to do this? These two men and the people coming to attack them and you, you, you just, science fiction wants to go crazy with it, right? But the point is, verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. For three and a half years, the world is coming against them and they can't touch them because God is sustaining them. They've got a purpose to fulfill as his witnesses and God is protecting them as they proclaim his truth. And even in our day and age, my brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that as long as we are here, God has a purpose for your life. And he will protect us and sustain us until the day that we're done. And we need to not fear what that may bring. I don't know. It shudders to say that, right? Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are being beheaded and tortured. All they do to us is laugh or maybe shun us in our job from promotions. Nothing like what others are and what will happen and is already happening in other places. But they stood firm. But when their testimony, when they finish their testimony, then yes, the beast rose up against them and killed them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt where also our Lord was crucified we know this to be Jerusalem to think of what all the Bible has to say about Sodom wicked, evil Egypt 
enslaving the Lord's people, uh, warring against them, keeping them captive. You know, this is the kind of description God is calling his holy city at that time. But then those from the people's tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies. You know, this is one of the things that 20 years ago people said, how's everyone going to see it? Man, we got live TV streaming on our our phones everywhere we go. The whole world is going to see these dead bodies for three and a half days. And they're not going to allow them to be put into the graves. And look at this. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They're so tired of hearing the message that they are glad to see them dead. Let their bodies rot. Now, I know that people argue whether this three and a half years that they prophesy is whether it's in the first half or the second half. It depends on who you read, which arguments you hear. Um, I've heard both. Uh, you know, the woes that are coming are so severe, it's hard to see how they can rejoice for three and a half days, giving gifts. Uh, if it's the second half, it would explain if it's the first half, how so many, 144,000 and many, many countless other Gentiles come to, to know and follow and preach the gospel in those days. Um, but the point is still, their testimony was here. They fulfilled it. And then after that, God raised them from the dead and called them up to heaven. Beautiful to see them go back to heaven and earthquakes, killing 7,000 people in Jerusalem and others giving glory to God as a result. And the second woe is past. There were three woes and the third is coming quickly. Wow, I'm, I knew my time was going to fly if I took the Daniel route, but finally the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. Interesting. Some people want to say that the trumpets and the seals are all happening at the same time. There's different descriptions. But if you notice, when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here, when the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, there was loud voices in heaven. Doesn't seem to be the same, right? They're continuing chronologically into the future. And what do they shout? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's Daniel, I mean, Isaiah 9, 7 coming to pass, right? There's delay no longer. It's coming. And they're rejoicing in heaven and we'll be there rejoicing with them. And the 24 elders who sat before the God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. Now look at verse 18. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great and who destroy those who destroy the earth. You know what? Every single person is going to give account to God. The, the, ju- the, the ones who've rejected him, they will be judged. Those who have served him and accepted Christ will receive their reward. It's going to happen. And we will be rejoicing to see God take his rightful place. And the temple of God was opened, verse 19, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and a great hail. Imagine being able to look and see into the temple of God. Now chapter 12 itself, this is one of those scenes where John gets drawn back. You remember we, I talked about putting together a puzzle. Sometimes you've got to step back and look at the big picture. John, several times, he's seeing what's going on on earth, and then God brings him back and shows him what's going on in heaven. And then we go back down and see what's happening on earth, and then we go back and look up what's happening in heaven. And here's another one of those moments. Right? The 
chapter 11 is all about what's happening on the earth. But chapter 12, we come back up to heaven and we see this vision, this great sign of the woman. Now, the woman, for sake of time, we understand to be the nation of Israel. And it comes out in this passage. It describes her clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. But notice, being with child, verse 2, she cries out in labor to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. A great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. We understand as we go through this passage, this is Satan. And we see the picture clearly. This is still past tense. He, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. This is all past tense, right? Here was Israel and Jesus was coming. She's about to bring the Christ child into the world. And as this is about to happen, Satan shows up to try to devour that child and to kill him before he can rise up to fulfill these prophecies. Did it happen? I mean, Satan wasn't successful. That didn't happen. But he came. He was saved. He was rescued. And uh, those of you who were at the Bible study um, that's been going on at the Lawson's, we looked at this chapter at long length about how the fulfillment of all the judgments against Satan from the time he fell in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it was prophesied that he was going to be de- uh, doomed. But he's never accepted that fate, uh, thinking he can somehow overcome God. But we see it fulfilled now. Yes, he drew a third of the stars, a third of the angels f- fell with him from heaven. Um, He tried to kill Christ through Herod, but he was unsuccessful. And so the Bible says her child was caught up to God and his throne in heaven. He's safe there. But the woman, right? In the future now, the woman says in his vision, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should be fed here, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Here we go. three, Three and a half years, Israel will be protected by God. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 7 says that war broke out in heaven and Satan and all of his angels rebelled against God. And Michael and his angels fought against them. But the great dragon was overcome. And verse 9, he was cast out of heaven. I always want to jump and cheer when we get to that verse. (laughs) Who deceives the whole world. The one who is the accuser of our brethren is cast out and he no longer has access to heaven. You know, today he still goes to wherever that access room is in the throne where he accuses the brothers before God day and night like he did Zechariah in the Old Testament. Excuse me, Joshua, the high priest found in Zechariah. But he'll no longer have access there anymore. He's cast out of heaven and he knows his time is short. And so he's going he's gonna to wreak terror here on earth. He's been cast out of heaven. And so the scene comes back down to earth and having great wrath, verse 12. He's come down to earth with great wrath because he knows he has a short time. So the dragon begins to persecute the woman. This is what we're seeing here, right? Pictorially, in this metaphor of uh, the dragon and the woman, right? Three and a half years, Israel is going to be here on earth. And there's going to be a protection for her. This time of peace with the covenant. And the two witnesses prophesying and protecting the city, right? Three and a half years. But at the end of those three and a half years, it says he's kicked out of heaven. And with great fury, he wreaks terror 
to the earth. The great tribulation, those three and a half years are going to be absolutely horrendous. Now that's what's going to be happening in the, in the chapters to come. We're going to see as now this seventh trumpet, just as the seventh seal revealed that it was really seven series of judgments with the trumpets, the last trumpet reveals there's seven bowls where God's going to pour out bowls of wrath upon the earth and it's going to get worse and worse. It's the third woe coming upon the earth. This is where we remind ourselves we're not going to be here. Isn't that great to know? Second Thessalonians says we have been saved from wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of the Lamb is going to be poured out as He judges those who have stood against Him to set up His throne where He will reign forever and ever as it was promised. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. It will happen. And then He'll set up that thousand year reign, go into eternity, and we will reign with Him and dwell with Him forevermore. But are you going to be there? Do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know that your sin is forgiven? Or are you going to be one of those who will whose heart will be hardened and continue to reject Him and be lost forevermore. We pray that everyone here will know the Lord personally as your Savior. If you need help with that, please come see us. That's why Jesus came. The death that He died wasn't an accident. He said, I come, Lord, to do Your will. When He came into the world, He knew what He was coming for, to pay for our sin, that He could set us free. Let's pray. Lord, at this Christmas season, we so often hear of the child born in the manger. But we are reminded today that that child is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who from all eternity past was already in the glories of heaven, but, but he was willing to deprive himself of the glory and the prominence and the worship that he had there to come be veiled in human flesh, to be rejected and despised by men, to even be uh, 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 forsaken by you, our Father, when you poured out the judgment for our sin on your Son on the cross. But we thank you that he could truly say, it is finished, paid in full, that we can now come receive forgiveness because he bore your wrath for us. So, Father, I do pray that you'd help us to go rejoicing and, and, and looking at the big picture as we go through our week of, of all that you're about to do. But, Lord, we're still in that delay period and it's hard for us to wait sometimes. But give us your patience as we have friends and family and neighbors who need to know. We pray that you would help them to come to faith in Christ before it's too late. Help us to be faithful like those witnesses, to stand true to your testimony and trust in your protection day by day until the time of our testimony is also finished. We thank you again for these things, rejoicing in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.